Welcome to another episode of React Roundup. My name is TJ Van Toll, and I'm flying solo here on the panel today, but that is all right because I have James Smith with me today. James, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, tell everybody a bit of why you're famous. <laughs> Thanks, TJ. Yeah, I'm James Smith. I'm uh, the CEO and co-founder of a company called Bugsnag, and Bugsnag detects when software breaks. But pr prior to running a company and being a founder, I built software in, in the web and on mobile applications in various industries for, for quite a while. I like to think of myself these days as a retired software engineer. I know just <laughs> enough to be dangerous. Hey folks, one of the things that I find that really makes a difference for people being happy in their job is working in a place that makes a difference. And there's a terrific company out there that's looking to hire full stack developer just like you, and that's Faith Life. Their average tenure is five years. I mean, five years, that's forever in developer years. Usually I see people changing jobs every one to two years. People are sticking around because they're great. They have a great values-based culture and they are hiring developers in the United States. They're looking for full stack developers who can do C Sharp or JavaScript on the back end and React on the front end. Go check them out at devchat.tv slash faithlife. That's devchat.tv slash faithlife. Awesome. So bug monitoring software. So I'm going to start with like the like a softball, an easy question. But like, why do you why do developers need bug monitoring software? Like, why isn't it enough to just throw it out there and rely on like you know, user reports and QA and that sort of stuff to find these bugs? Well, a surprising number of companies that, that, that we work with still do that. Uh, and they're coming to us to rehabilitate. But I think that modern software development has changed hugely. I joke a lot about how you know, 25, 30 years ago, when you delivered software, you, you printed it onto a CD or floppy disks and that software was done. And these days, most software is running in an environment where it can be updated and fixed and patched. And also, I think that people are adopting more principles like Agile and Lean, where sometimes you're going to build something that's not ready intentionally. And you're going to say, look, we're going to release this to customers early because we don't even know if customers are going to like this yet. And so the concept of keeping and working on something after it's shipped to the customers is now the default in most companies in most cases. So you can't have this like perfect five-month QA process, print it to Goldmaster on CD and ship it out to Best Buy when it's done. You now have this living, breathing piece of software. So I think that's the main thing that's caused this evolution. I think that most people have now taken to squishing down that QA period and replacing it from both the left-hand side and the right-hand side. Probably almost everyone from the left-hand side is adding in really nice automated testing, unit testing, integration testing, linting, and, and things like that. And from the right-hand side, QA is getting pushed down by production awareness and production monitoring, where things like Bugsnag error monitoring products are, are key there. Yeah, that's interesting stuff. And I think maybe the next thing, could you just paint me a picture of like, when you talk about like bug monitoring or error reporting software, like what does that actually look like? Like, so suppose I'm working at a big company, I've got a giant React app, maybe I've also got a React like mobile app. What is my steps? Like, what is my experience actually like? Like, how do I install this? And then what sort of thing am I looking at? Like once I deploy this app out to production? Yes, it depends on the type of software you're running. But yeah, in a, in a React application or a web app stack, for example, you want to be able to monitor runtime errors and, and, and bugs that are affecting your, your, your end users, your customers out in the wild. 
And in order to do that, the way that our product works is we have SDKs or libraries that you install via your package manager. So actually our software runs as part of your code. It's linked in as part of your code rather than being something that ingests log files or anything like that. And so, yeah, you're writing a React app, you can just NPN or Yarn install Bugsnag. If you've got a Rails API powering your backend, you add it to your gem file and do bundle install. And the same is true of pretty much every single platform that we run in. So once you've installed that SDK, you set an API key in code or configuration, depending on the platform. And then Bugsnag basically sits in the background, taking up almost zero resources until we detect a problem has occurred. And a problem differs on each platform. And in React App, for example, we will detect any exception that bundles up to the window.nr handler on the browser. We will detect any un uh, handled promise rejections and in react specifically we'll look into react error boundaries as well so you could use a bug stack provided error boundary and wrap your parts of your code base in a bug stack wrapper and we'll then automatically report them off to bugsnags.com and send diagnostics alongside with it. But the process is pretty similar on every platform, mobile, desktop, web browser, just with slight differences of the types of error that we catch. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't, we were talking before that the last time I used some sort of error reporting software was quite a few years ago. And I remember the first time I did it, I was absolutely astonished at what it was spitting out. Because <laughs> right, you, you have this like, I think when you work on a big piece of software, like, you know, there are some bugs out there, right? Like you've got some Jira tickets that have been open for a while. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll get to that. That's sort of a hard problem to solve. But I remember actually putting this stuff in and like you get stuff that like you had absolutely no clue uh, what it meant. And I, I guess one thing I'm curious about, because my actually my one problem with using this, and this was years ago when these things were probably a lot less refined, but it got hard to like make sense of all the errors because it, it almost became like there was just this like a uh, huge mess of errors. So I'm curious, like the sort of things you do, I, I imagine you have like some sort of like aggregation algorithms that tries to make sense of like, well, okay, well, these bugs are all the same or like, do you help, try to help developers like get at like the root cause? Like maybe this is like browser specific or that sort of thing. Yeah, it's funny when I remember apps have been, chucking out log files for, for, for ages. And a lot of the time you don't think actively to look at log files and you just go in there when you absolutely have to. And they're generating gigabytes and gigabytes of data that maybe you never look at. And then there was this leap from reactive error monitoring to proactive error monitoring. And there was some really early players in the space. There was a, a product called Hoptoad, which rebranded to something else, which was super early in the Rails space. And people were like, wow, this is really cool, but holy moly, do I have a lot of stuff coming in? And I think the leap that products like Hoptoad initially made and then we've kind of refined over the years is aggregation number one, as you say. First off, can we say that, look, we've had 10,000 bugs, uh, 10,000 exceptions or crashes, but actually all of these 10,000 exceptions or crashes came from the exact same bug, the underlying same line of code. And so at the most basic level, we have these grouping algorithms, we call them grouping algorithms, that look at the line of code where the bug originated. And it differs depending on the platform. We can be a lot more sophisticated in some areas where we'll look at how similar the code is. We'll take a snapshot of like seven lines before and after where the crash happened and look at code similarity heuristics. And in other platforms, we keep it very simple. We don't have to do that level of complexity where we'll say this was this type of exception, so runtime error on line 59 of user.java. And that's enough for us to say with pretty high confidence that this is a unique bug. Uh, to this this version, for example. So yeah, the, getting that aggregation and grouping in place is the step one. But even then, 
you said earlier, how do people move from customer reports and customer feedback to having a, a proactive system like this? Well, not all bugs we had that we have a t-shirt with this on. Not all bugs are created equal. And if you just went through this list and said, I'm going to fix every single bug that my bug snag tool is reporting to me, then you're going to waste your life away. You're going to be spending time on stuff that really doesn't matter, especially in the client side, especially when it comes to JavaScript and React applications, because it's the wild west. You've got browsers all over the different places. You've got Chrome extensions that are causing problems and injecting content into the DOM. And so the next layer on top of that aggregation is then sophisticated prioritization tools. So figuring out things like, well, which one affected the most customers? Which one affected customers that are paying us the most money uh, if you're going to keep it straightforward? Or which one affected customers that are in key states or key flows, like a login or sign-up flow, for example? And so we try to capture as much information as we can at runtime and then allow you to create filters, bookmarks, and prioritization rules inside of folks. It's funny. I, I didn't even really think about that, but you're right because someone could be just using some garbage chrome extension or like maybe they're even like developing their own chrome extension that's just like you know totally screwing things up and if you tried to debug that my god like you're just gonna be spending days and weeks can, can you even know like for example any way you can tell how bad it affected the user right like is this like is there a way of knowing like this is just an error but the, it didn't actually affect the user experience versus like this is actually i don't know like forcing the ui to be unresponsive or maybe even like crashing the tab or something is there ways that you can even tell on that level of detail yeah it, it's the the most the simplest way to do that is to look at the what we call the error handler and so i kind of mentioned this we'll use javascript as an example or react as an example here there's various ways that we automatically detect that a bug has happened and some of them uh, for example we wrap event handlers. So we wrap the callbacks of event handlers. So if an exception happens in an event handler, and that doesn't necessarily always bubble up to your window.on error, it might just mean that your click failed to do what you expected your click to do because the callback crashed halfway through. That is almost always less bad than a bug that bubbles up. Still bad. It's less bad than a bug that bubbles all the way up to window.on error, which basically means no JavaScript is executing in the script tag anymore. And especially because most people are using bundlers these days and bundling all their JavaScript up into application.on uh, to JS. If your JavaScript stops executing in that script tag, you're, you're boned. That's it. You're, the, the whole page stops responding. There's other things as well, like a promise rejection handler. Again, if it's in a promise, it happened asynchronously, it's probably not the end of the world. So that's the most straightforward way to look at it and to say, look, if it was a click event, that's bad, but not as bad as if the entire page locked up. In terms of the performance aspects, though, they're a lot more subtle. We have um, all code snippets to detect certain things like freezes. And my favorite one is um, our frustration detection snippet. So <laughs> it detects rage clicks. So if you... <laughs> I said earlier, if you've got code that made an on-click handler fail, fine. But how, how can you detect if your developers forgot to hook up on-click at all to a button? So you've just got a button that looks like it's clickable, it does literally nothing. And so we've got some snippets you can drop in that will detect things like when you click on the same DOM element multiple times within a particular time window, and then it will send a message to Bugsnag saying someone's rage-clicking this button. And so things like that are are still as frustrating, maybe more frustrating than a full page freeze. But it's kind of up to the developer to decide, yeah, this is the one that's that's causing customers the most pain. Yeah, because you said snippets. So is your model that basically like there's some default handling and then there's extra things you can add on that you might not want to give everybody because it would, it, I'm assuming it works, it attaches event handlers. So there's like some small performance hits so that you might not want to go nuts with it sort of thing. 
Yeah, it's it's more it's more that we have an opinion that, that our product is opinionated yet extensible. And so pretty much all of our SDKs are plugin-based. I mean, our JavaScript one, we just released a new version of this two days ago. The whole thing's built around plugins, even internally. So things start off as snippets sometimes and then graduate into official plugins that we put as default inside of the application. Some of them, like the Rage Click one, they're more interesting than actionable in a lot of cases. And so if we ever evolve that to be one of these ones where it's like, we are confident that something is going wrong based on these rage clicks, then we'll put it as a default plugin inside of our JavaScript SDK. But actually, it's one of those things that people want to tune. How many clicks is a rage click? What time period should I measure and all that kind of stuff? So the stuff that's on by default, the opinion of this stuff is, is what we think are the most important negative signals inside of your application, typically. But yeah, it's, it's all plugin based. And we try to expose as much as possible in terms of APIs so that you can hook in your own plugins and do your own stuff. Like even I said earlier about reporting handled versus unhandled exceptions. Sometimes you've got your try catch. And my favorite piece of code to read ever is when it says try catch and all there is in the catch is a comment that says should never get here and (laughs) inevitably it's gonna get there so what what a lot of our customers do most of our customers do is they'll put a bug snag dot notify brackets e error whatever it is and so that way you know if it's got there and then you can decide if that's a problem or not but yeah we try to be opinionated yet extensible as our product philosophy i kind of like that for the catch block because I've, i've totally been that person that that you go into the catch and you think to yourself like i don't even know how in the world this would happen but like I feel like I can't just leave this empty, right? So I have to put something And it here. will, so like, it will happen. Yeah. <laughs> like, the, the ones that crack me up all the time, I think this is because I'm getting across the old programmer now, but try catch blocks where the catch block has just a comment and nothing else in it. And then switch case statements where the default case says should never get here. <laughs> it's just like, cool, let's make sure it doesn't. <laughs> What's well, funny too, because I the part of my life I did Java code and Java like had, I, I think it was like assert false or something like that. There was some way that you could put in your code that like if almost like at the compiler level that if this code ever executed, it would have a way of like informing you, right? Whereas in JavaScript, outside of some tool like you're saying, like, there's no built-in way of doing that, right? Like there's no way of uh, saying, hey, just let me know if this code ever runs. JavaScript will just merrily go ahead, ignore that comment and go right on its way and yep. who knows what's going to happen. Well, people, people will do, I've seen people put to throw their own custom exceptions in those cases. But would you rather kill JavaScript execution completely and, and, and completely screw your app if it ends up in that case or have it run and then know about it because maybe it was okay that it hit that case. And I think that in, in JavaScript land and client-side land in particular, you don't have the luxury of being in a controlled environment. You can't just open the log file. You're, the logs are on someone else's machine and that machine is out the environment is completely out of your control. So yeah, there's so many, like you said, when you add these solutions in, sometimes you're surprised at how many bugs appear. I mean, mainly that's because a lot of people don't think about it during development. And then when they do turn something on, eventually they're like, "Uh oh, look at all these edge cases that happen to loads of customers. Yeah, it's actually in a way a testament to JavaScript because I like in a way is when I think back to Java and saying, well, the code would completely stop if this happened. But in a way, that's kind of a bad thing too, right? Because if a customer hits it and then the app just totally says like, oh, compiler, you know, or runtime error and just totally just dies. It's kind of nice in JavaScript that some of these errors can exist and things are mostly okay, right? Like it, like 
you, you still want to know about it, but maybe some they're still able to do, the user might still be able to do the tasks that they, they're able to do. So you don't necessarily want to just completely crash in these situations. So I kind of like the notification approach. It's, it's good it's good and bad. You end up with a world that, you know, is almost a dirty word these days. Actually, it's having a bit of a renaissance. But in PHP, in original PHP, not cool new PHP, you could have an error and then the code would keep executing. It would say, oh, we had an error. Okay, let's just keep keep going. Let's keep going. So you end up sometimes having, you know, 20 compounding errors on a page because this one variable wasn't initialized and then it just kept on trying all the way down the page. And I think that we found pretty quickly that resilience was not helpful in that case. You ended up with, with this uh, getting into worse and worse situations as the code kept on trying to execute down the page. I think that the trade-off is, you know, I think it's okay to have like click handle or fail in some particular case, and but the rest of the app continues to work. But I think that it's much harder to diagnose and debug and reproduce problems. And so you end up with, you know, you get in a report from a customer saying, I got into this state, then how the heck is the developer or, or the support person going to reproduce that to get back into that state? That's the hard part with allowing code to continue to execute. For sure. I want to turn the conversation here in a second over to mobile, because I know that's that opens a whole nother can of worms. But I do have, I think, one last question on the website. Are there, since you're sort of the aggregator of the aggregator of bugs, in a sense, are there any like really common things that you find people do or like things that your average developer should be aware of, like common mistakes that people overlook that to just look out for and sort of be cognizant of? Yeah, and it's it sounds so obvious, but it's just by far and away the highest order of magnitude type of bug that we see. And that is uninitialized variables. Still in 2020, null pointer exceptions, uninitialized variables are the number one cause of bugs. And there's no surprise that languages like like Swift try to come in and say, right, let's let's force things not to be null or, or uninitialized when at the compile level. The other thing I think we see all the time in JavaScript, especially, and again, no surprises here is type errors and, and problems caused by unclear typing or coercion of typing. And so a lot of these things, I think, can be solved by having really nice linting in place or using a typed variant of JavaScript. We use all of our new code, Bugsnag's React app is now in TypeScript. And we have a ton of linting in place. I think we use Airbnb's ESLint rules off the bat, uh, but it's we're, we're trying to keep things very tight before they even get merged in a PR. But because we see all of these problems that come up, but yeah, null pointer exceptions, unlicialized variables, type errors, still in 2020, the, the biggest problems. Yeah, it's funny. It's amazing how like simple linting tools can catch so much of this, these things. I'm curious when you say uninitialized variable, like I'm like what the specific scenario is like, so I declare variable, I don't know, X, right, that I'm going to use. How is this an error that's not like caught by the developer during testing? Is it that it's like a, a, like a different scenario, like some if check or something that like there's some case that they're not accounting for? Or yeah, it's almost it's almost always when one of the things is when we see all these bugs coming in. And but we can't see the full source code of our customers. We don't, you know, it's, it's a sensitive area. We, we don't want them to know have have give us access to that. So we keep it isolated. But what we see in our code, and what, what I've seen in my career at least, is yeah, when the developer has overconfidence in the order or structure of code execution, and so you're like, well, it's going to go off into this function over here. It's going to fill in all these this, this data, and then we'll run the next thing. But 
there are about 50 ways that that function that's meant to fill in all these variables could fail. And I mean, this is a really, I think a really straightforward one. I wrote a blog post about this years ago, but one of the most common bugs that we see in JavaScript land is for, for legacy applications is jQuery is not defined. And jQuery is not defined as a bug because most people historically would pull in jQuery from a CDN and then they would run their code afterwards. So they would expect jQuery or the dollar symbol to be defined. But because of the way that the JavaScript engines run, if one script tag fails, the next script tag will continue to to run and try to run. So if your next script tag, the whole thing relies on there being a dollar symbol or jQuery defined, but it's not, you're kind of bugged. And so if you're using some kind of module system or bundler system that has interdependencies, that can be the case as well. But it's true of any code that expects something else to be available and set up. If that fails, you're out of luck. So yeah, it's really just being overconfident about code paths running and not failing. Who would do that though? (laughs) Luckily, I'm not guilty of that. so, so, So we're good to go. So I do want to get into mobile because this seems like even more of a hairy territory. So I imagine like from the web perspective, your code is still going to run for like the mobile web. And so it's very similar sort of workflow and such, but you work with React Native as well. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. It's mobile is, uh, I talk about client side being the wide wet, wild west and people who are JavaScript developers for the browser know that the browser environment differences are, are constant pain in the butt. Now, think if you if you think it's a pain in the bum developing for you know three four different major browsers, there are twenty to forty thousand different Android devices out there in the wild, and every single manufacturer of Android devices, LG, Samsung, whoever, puts their own little flavor and spice on on Android. And what I mean by that is they can do things such as actually edit the core operating system of Android. There was really crazy bugs back in the day on Android when it was a bit more uncontrolled before Google stepped in and said, hey, stop messing with this. I forget who it was now, so I don't want to shame the wrong vendor, but a manufacturer of Android devices edited JSON parsing code in core Android to do something different. And so if you're an Android developer expecting JSON to be parsed and handled in a particular way, it would work absolutely fine on every vendor apart from this one, and then your code wouldn't work. And if you didn't have some, if you didn't have that in your test farm of devices, or you didn't have something like a bug stag in production, you wouldn't know about it apart from someone saying, hey, I've got an LG phone or whatever it is, and it's not working, your app isn't working. And so, yeah, it's not as easy as spinning up a couple of VMs. You can't have all 20 to 40,000 Android devices sat on your desk from all these different vendors. So mobile is hairy. And the more hairy the environment is, the harder it is to build really good, high-quality SDKs for these platforms. But yeah, we do support React Native, and we have to deal with that plus all the other layers of React Native. Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it, the only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just you need something like that there. And Raygun is awesome at this. They they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick, and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let, let's face it. Grepping through logs is no fun. And having people not able to tell you that it's too slow 
because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at reactroundup.com slash Raygun. And what's the actual like like high level implementation look like? Because on the web, I imagine like like this is over trivializing, but it's like a window dot on air handler, and then a lot of logic around that. On native, does React Native provide like hooks into this, or is, or do you have like native code that gets into this and finds all the errors, or how does that work? The latter. There's there's a React Native is one of these environments where I actually think that when when React Native first came out, people were like, oh, great, this is right once deploy multiple places. This is going to be awesome. But in reality, I mean, that's what kind of expos for these days. But I think in reality, a lot of people are using React Native to do retrofit work. They're taking existing native applications and they're putting in, replacing some chunks of it or some components of it with React Native. Now, because there is... JavaScript code and there is iOS and Android code running inside of most of these applications, we need to make sure that we catch bugs in every single layer. So imagine like a layer cake. At the top, you've got the JavaScript runtime. Even that, you've got different types of JavaScript runtime running because you've got JS core versus whatever else is, is being distributed. So you've got that JS runtime differences. Then you've got the operating system iOS or Android layer differences. And we have to capture Objective-C errors and Swift errors and, and, and all sorts of stuff on iOS. And then JVM errors on uh, the Android side. And then one layer down, you've got things like MDK errors, C and C++ errors happening in Android. And then the same equivalent happening on iOS. So tons of layers, they all have to communicate. Recently, React Native, actually, I don't know how recently it was, but uh, React Native now supports React error handlers, which is great. Error boundaries, sorry. And so that's something that Bugsnake's always supported, and now you can use those in React Native. But effectively, what we have to do is we have to be able to capture bugs at every single layer and reliably report them. And sometimes we have to be able to report bugs before the React Native engine has even initialized, because there might be some Android code that ran before the React Native code initialized. So yeah, we, we just recently released the new major version of our React Native notifier and put it all under one monorepo, Bugsnag.js, to make sure that this initialization logic is just buttoned up. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. I, I have some background in native script, so like similar technology to React Native, like JavaScript running on, on mobile. And I remember one thing we struggled with is getting really good JavaScript stack traces. Are you able to, when you catch the error on like native land, like give people the like, this is the line of code where there was a problem? I just re and is that something like React Native exposes for you, or do you have to do some like magic to try to access that? There's a lot of magic in every layer. The stack traces are almost certainly obfuscated in some way, either intentionally or unintentionally. In the JavaScript layer, we rely on the source maps standard, which isn't as standard as you think it is. It's very wildly differently implemented on each platform. But what we do is, if we have an obfuscated JavaScript stack trace. We're not going to give that to the developer because they're going to be like, what the heck is you know function X 
why two? That's not what I wrote. We want to show people the line of code that they wrote rather than what it ended up being obfuscated into. So we automatically ingest and apply source maps to the JavaScript layer so that we can present the original stack trace to the developer. But like, as I said, because it's a multi-layer system, we also have to do that in iOS and Android. In Android, a lot of people use something called ProGuard and ProGuard obfuscates the Java stack traces. So we have to then reapply to get the original stack traces back. And then the same is true on iOS. iOS is almost even worse because it's effectively just, I'm not offending iOS developers here, but it's like it's C, it's, it's low level. And so if a crash happens, what we get is a memory address. It looks more like a classic core dump. And so we have to take that memory address and then reapply something called a, a DSIM file to it to produce an original stack trace. So yeah, magic at all layers of the stack. Yeah, I didn't even think about the, because the ProGuard thing, I had actually, I've run across this with my NativaScript experience as well, because a lot of people don't think about the fact that when you think of iOS and Android apps, you think the source code is like compiled and obfuscated and you can't just download and use it. But since with React Native, you're running with JavaScript code. If you don't take any additional steps, your JavaScript code is just hanging out there right in your bundle. And to a lot of people, especially like, I don't know, people dealing with sensitive work or company data, they don't want to expose that. So they do some basically additional obfuscation on top of what you'd normally do on the web. So you end up with some absolutely garbled nonsense. I'm actually pretty impressed that you're able to like sort of undo, because that's like unreverse reverse engineering in a sense to get at the the parts you're interested in. It's, I'm glad that there are somewhat standards here. And we've, we've been a part of evolving the source map standard as well a little bit. But I'm glad there's somewhat standards here because it, there's a bit of reverse engineering required, but mostly we're just trying to follow the rules almost and say, right, let's let's pick this back apart. But yeah, without the aggregation and grouping and without the deobfuscation work that we do to provide original source maps, I think that a product like Bugsnag would be a lot less valuable. For sure. The other thing I want to get into is I know one of the, the, the key things you do is help protect against, like I think you say erratic SDKs, right? Or other SDKs you use. And I know you were telling me a story of uh, Facebook, their SDK sort of uh, going down. So why don't you share like what I, I guess what I'm talking about, right, in terms of third party SDKs and a React Native world and sort of what you can do about that? Well, I was joking about jQuery is not defined earlier and, and, and things like that. But, you know, modern software, you don't write the whole thing yourself from scratch. You're relying on other people's open source packages and SDKs. And for anyone who is a React Native or iOS developer recently that uses the Facebook SDK, you'll be very familiar with the fact that there were two outages within two and a half months on the Facebook SDK that caused iOS applications to crash at boot if they were using Facebook's authentication platform. And this is super frustrating because, so first off, I, I like to say I don't want to anger the ops gods. And so, you know, Facebook had this issue, you know, it, it sucks, it, but like, you know, I give them a break a little bit. It's a tricky one to deal with. But in reality, it's a really difficult one for developers to, to deal with as well. If you are Spotify, you use the Facebook SDK to allow people to authenticate. One day, without any code changes happening at all on your side, suddenly your app stops working and you get a ton of bug snags or, or whatever you're using for error monitoring coming in. And what happened was, in this particular case, Facebook's SDK reaches out to Facebook's API to say, hey, tell me information about how I should initialize. Facebook's API responded differently to how the SDK was expecting. So it came back and said, instead of giving a structure, a dictionary, it came back with a, a Boolean. 
And so the code that was reading that JSON payload basically just wet the bed and was like, I don't, what do I do here? Yeah. Uh, so it's, it kind of sucks because normally developers think about bugs that are introduced as part of a code change. But in this case, it wasn't a code change. The data changed and it was data that wasn't even part of my application. It was data that was part of a third-party SDK. And so... Yeah, holy moly. We had all of these apps that use the Facebook SDK, which is almost every consumer mobile application, completely die on boot. Some of them didn't, and we found that quite interesting. And so Bugstag, because we're a crash monitoring solution, an error monitoring solution, we saw all of the crashes coming in from all of these major consumer mobile applications that use (laughs) our product. So we had a bit of a deluge. And luckily, my infrastructure team's built... uh, an architecture that was auto scaling and we, we barely noticed the blip, which was fantastic. But yeah, we were like, well, why does this app have this volume of crashes with this app? It's fine. And in reality, it's really sensible, defensive programming that some developers had taken and others hadn't. So one of them was wrapping the SDK in their own error hooks. So if this crash happened, it could bubble up to the, the top and crash the application. That one's pretty straightforward. Easier said than done, though, because a lot of asynchronous work was happening in that SDK. The other one, which is a bit more aggressive, which I actually think is a really good best practice in general for anyone using SDKs, is wrapping the SDK initialization in a feature flag. So we saw some shapes of error chart coming in that were like, whoa, there's tons of crashes, and then immediately went down to zero because these customers of ours were able to turn off Facebook's SDK by updating a feature flag remotely that was then did not initialize that code for their for their customer base. I wish I could tell you which customers because then I'd give them a shout out, but it's obviously obviously private stuff. But you know, there's all these ways that now if you're relying on third-party code, you have to be super aware of all the ways that that code could change based on external dependencies and, and, and protect against that. Yeah, I, I'm actually quite amazed that some people actually were that proactive to account for this because I think in the the native script apps I wrote, I never once made an assumption. I mean, okay, so it's one thing if like you call to a third party like API or something, right? Like those are the situations usually you would have some error handling. Like I'm building a mapping app and I need to get like locations to show on markers and I call some service. Well, I'm going to have some error handling for that because this is a call. But I never, I never accounted the service itself Right, because almost all of these things a native have like some sort of a NIT call, right? You pass it an API key, so you you initialize it, and usually those things don't even have air handling hooks, right? Like at least in They're my experience, to always work, yeah. Right, like it, it's <laughs> it's not like you call like Facebook.sdk.init and you have to pass it an on air handler. It's just assumed you do it, right? And like normally, then later on in your code, you just have to like make sure it's there sort of thing. But you don't you never account for the fact that like, what if it did like something erroneous or something that I totally didn't expect. So I'm absolutely amazed because I would definitely fall in the camp of people that like hard crash for sure on this sort of situation, because I, I sort of assume these things are always going to be there. I've got to believe that the people who did that, either have been bitten by this problem in the past and in their post-mortem retrospective, they were like, let's do this. Or they were used to working in an environment where SDKs are less reliable. And one of those is in my former life, I used to work for a company that made gaming SDKs, mobile gaming SDKs and notoriously add 
provider SDKs were the crashiest SDKs because you've got these companies where they're experts in monetization, they're experts at uh, building relationships with developers and publishers, but maybe their SDKs aren't the hottest SDKs around and people are swapping them in and out all the time uh, to get the best deal. The business team is saying, right, we need to swap out to use this ad provider because they're giving us a better deal. But no one's saying, well, are they well-known developer, developers? Do they have a good, high-quality SDK? So I know, at least in the gaming space, mobile gaming space, people were very wary about adding in ad SDKs and therefore probably more likely to protect against problems. Yeah, and the other thing, too, is that in native land, it's really hard, if not in some cases impossible, to actually fix these problems on the fly. Like there, I mean, there are some things you can do, like in a React Native world, to like hot-swap production code, but it gets wonky at a times. So I'd imagine too, like a lot of these would require full like app updates through the app store, Google Play and such to actually fix too. So like, yeah, like a fairly significant business loss, I imagine for some of these people. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't even want to think about the actual dollar amount of that because it would stress me out too much. But I know that it's, it was very rare that people use feature flags to turn these things off. It's very rare that people were using code push or something like that to, yeah. to, to hot patch these things. I know from looking at the data that a lot of our customers that saw these problems effectively just rode the wave and waited for Facebook because they couldn't do anything else. They had to wait for Facebook to yeah. fix it because this is a multiple hour issue. But Yeah, Facebook's going to fix it faster than they're going to be able exactly. to. Exactly. Yeah. Day. And in the end, I just think that Facebook rolled back the, the code changes on their side that, that made the data structure change. Gotcha. So one of the things I want to get into is like workflow from a company perspective and like sort of any recommendations you might have. So like if we take this example, what is like, what would you... I guess, what's the ideal like developer experience? Because obviously, like, you don't want to be notified every time like somebody gets jQuery is not defined on your page. But you might want to know if your entire iOS and Android user base just suddenly hard crashing instantly. So what are like, I guess, what sort of systems you support? And what do you maybe recommend for notifications? Like are are like people getting emails for this or like uh, how how quickly are people getting notified and able to respond when something like this happens? So we the way we've built Bugsnag at least is that we fit we, we try to fit into existing workflows. So if you are using uh, Jira or or any other project management or issue tracking tool, we support that and we don't just support it as a you know create an issue in that tool. We typically have what we call a two way synchronization. So if you send a if link a Bugsnag bug in a Jira and someone marks it as fixed in Jira or whatever you're using, that will mark it as fixed inside of Bugsnag. And so we support pretty much every major issue tracker and project management tool, and we try to have a two-way sync on all of those platforms. We even do things like if you've marked it as fixed in your Jira tool or whatever it is, and then Bugsnag detects it's still happening in a later release, we'll automatically reopen it and mark it as a regression. So we don't want to be a product that comes in and says you have to completely change the way you're doing things. We want to be a little nudge in the right direction. So integrations with project management tools is a key way that we do that. We also integrate with alerting and chat tools. And so most people are using Slack these days or MS Teams or something like that. You can configure on an application by application basis I want these types of errors to go into these types of chat rooms. So if you are a JavaScript developer, you might want to see all new errors that you that we haven't seen before pop up as a message. We recently launched something about a month ago, a month and a half ago, that we call the alerting and workflow engine. And this is basically a more sophisticated way of routing those things. So you can say, look, I work on the payments platform in the React application. And that is defined as living under these URLs or having this package name in the code path. So you can now set up alerts to go that, that match those patterns to go into a particular 
particular Slack channel or to alert at a higher frequency because they're key code paths. So in, I, I've said this a couple of times now, but the client side is the Wild West. It's a little bit insane to turn on error, uh, alerts for every new error. Some We have the option in Bugsnag to turn on alerts for every occurrence of each error. And that makes sense, again, if you've honed it down to say, I want to see on my Rails application every time a credit card fails to pass through because of a problem on our side. But the the web, your code is running on so many different devices in so many different environments um, that it's a bit much to have all of those coming in. So really the default that we have is alert me on any new type of bug that hasn't happened before. And then you can go in and, and again, opinionated yet extensive. We can go in and then fine tune exactly what you want to see. We also integrate with everything else. Like PageDuty, we integrate with Webhooks, we integrate with Splunk, you name it, we've got a connection to it. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. I didn't even think about that angle, but I could totally see when I'm setting this up saying like, well, if something goes on here, like I want to, like I want to log, but I don't necessarily want to know about it. But if a payment fails, or if like a user registration, something like highly valuable knows, I might want to ping someone like immediately. And cool. Yeah, I, I could see like the Slack bit of it being pretty nice also. Well, you you want to you want to build trust in in Slack. You don't want to be one of those tools, those products that's a noisy bot. And so, what, what we typically do is we tune it down by default. And the other thing we do is spike detection. So, if we detect that there's an unusual increase in in errors on, on a project, that will ping into Slack by default. But also, that's the sort of thing that people hook up to PageDuty or OpsGenie or whatever your on-call system is. So, we're seeing more and more development teams rather than just operations info teams having on-call rotors. So you get woken up at four in the morning if there's an unusual spike in activity. If that Facebook bug happened, for example, in the middle of the night. Yeah, yeah, because that's like the one situation where you actually probably would want to be woke up at four in the morning. That's yep. what it's worth looking into for sure. Uh, this this has been sort of fascinating to me. Is there any topics that we have yet to cover that you'd like to get into? Or do you have any other advice you'd like to to give out there to to people who have a decent sized react audience that they should know just about bug reporting in general i feel like the the, the the obvious one is like if you're not using some kind of production awareness production error monitoring you absolutely have to these days just it feels like people who aren't doing it these days are just sticking their fingers in their ears and hoping for the best <laughs> and so i think most of the audience is is already using something even if they've homegrown their own thing that's in window.error and sends an email or something like that. So that's the kind of first thing. But I also think that, like you said before, that error monitoring and stability management has come a really long way in the past five, 10 years. And you don't need to declare bug bankruptcy anymore. You don't need to just turn on this all and be like, oh, it's too much. We just give up. If you and your... One thing I talk about all the time is that engineering and product teams actually should be really, really aligned on what a bad bug is and the definition of when is the right time to work on bug fixes versus getting that new feature live. So have a tool that monitors this in production and then have alignment inside your development team that says we are going to fix bugs that pass this threshold and we're going to stop on new product development if our stability drops below a particular percentage. So I genuinely think if you align between product and engineering, or some people call it business and engineering, but those two teams need to have alignment in order for you guys to to know when the right time is to to fix bugs and clean up technical debt. So they're the two things that I, I evangelize. Cool. Yeah, and I, I definitely agree with that with my experiences as well. Like it's, I, I think, like you said, it's it's still far too common for, I mean, really huge organizations in some sense are really important apps to just be totally 
flying by, right? This is just not doing anything. So yep. it's a good note. I, I think it's a good note to end on. So why don't we go ahead and move into the picks? Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. So I, I have just one pick today. I've gotten into, I don't, I don't even remember like the weird way the internet works, what got me into this, but there's this guy, have you ever heard of the guy named Wim Hof? He's oh, this, yeah. like this, I think he's this, this Dutch guy that's like famous for going outside like shirtless and like climbing mountains in the snow sort of thing. And for some reason, this just fascinated me. So I, I've got a book on him called What Doesn't Kill Us. And I'm a few few chapters into it. I've been just listening to the audio book. And it's, it's sort of fascinating. It, it talks through the science of like, is it just this dude's genetic makeup that's, that allows him to do it? Or is it just training, right? Like getting, getting more accustomed to this. And the answer seems to be a little bit of both. But it's, it's interesting because it definitely takes more of like a scientific perspective on like how in the heck is this possible? So I'd recommend it if you're at all curious about that i checked that out so it's awesome. my only pick I, I, is that the guy who can mentally control his body temperature well yeah that's he that's where it gets it. yeah <laughs> that's where it gets into like a little bit of craziness because like you find yourself as you read through this going back and forth between like this guy is just looney tunes crazy a little bit but at the same time he subjects himself to like scientific studies a lot right like unlike a lot of these people that are like you know clerics and crazy like sort of nutcases he actually submits himself to scientific studies a lot. Like he's been put through all sorts of rigorous tests and such as well. So like some of what he claims has actually been proven, but then that part of like, he's controlling this with his mind. That's the stuff that's sort of like, eh, but <laughs> it's interesting. I'll, I'll, it's interesting nevertheless, I guess. Yeah, um, on my picks, the, the thing that I've been playing with a lot recently is uh, this new game that just came out just a few days ago called Fall Guys. I don't know if you've heard of this. No. It is, it is, uh, it's, the, it's on Steam and it's the PlayStation game of the month, free game of the month, and it is ridiculous. It's like a Battle Royale game, but crossed with like Mario Party minigames. And it's, it brings out the best and worst in people, but it's insane. You, you should, <laughs> it's so much fun. And it's a relatively small developer that, that's built it. And I imagine that their servers are getting hammered right now, but it's an insanely fun game. But yeah, apart from that, um, I don't get much time to do hobbies and side things at the moment. But my, my fun pick at the moment is um, this weird scene called the console portabilizing scene. And if you're, I come from a gaming background, I'm a big gamer, but there's this huge scene of people who take games consoles and then chop them up and make them portable. And so my little side hobby has been taking Nintendo Wii's, chopping them up and making them into like Game Boy form factor and things like that. So that's my, my other little pick, little side, side hobby. That could be a lot of fun. I've I've wanted before because like the the virtual console type stuff is it's it's fun, but it's not quite the same as like holding the actual thing in your hand. Like there, you get a nostalgia over time of like, man, I really like. There's something that kicks in when you just hold like an old Sega Genesis or Super Nintendo or NES controller. That's it, just like I don't know if it's just nostalgia or, or what it is, but it's it's different than just playing it virtually. So it's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, you want to sit down and actually complete the games rather than just like I found with emulators and things you pull them up and just go through 10 games and say oh that was interesting next game rather than sitting down and having that couch experience yeah 
Yeah. Well, James, this has been a great chat. I, I think my last question for you is where can people find you if they want to you know, ask any further questions, follow all of what you do? I'm on Twitter at Luke, J-L-O-O-P-J. I'm not super active on there. I'm trying to get back into it. And then I'm kind of relatively active on the conference and speaking scene as well. So catch, check out uh, my Twitter or Bugsnag's Twitter to see which conference I'm at next. But I do talk a lot about technical debt on the conference scene. So if you're around and you see me, drop in and I'll say hi. Awesome. Well, thanks again for joining us and spend another episode of React Roundup. So have a good one, everyone. Thanks, CJ. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.